This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carter. Hello all, this is David Farhat, one of the hosts of Guilty Conscience. Welcome to International Tax in Africa and In-Depth Look, part one. This is our first two-part series, so please be on the lookout for part two. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Guilty Conscience. As always, Nate Carden here with David Farhat, Stefan Victor. Iman is still on leave, and so again, we're joined by Maitik Salazar as our, our guest host. Today's episode is going to be a very interesting discussion of an area of transfer we don't always talk about very much, which is transfer pricing in Africa. We're uh, very pleased to be joined by Lobade Osasame of UUBO and Zach Puga of EY. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much for joining us today. And Africa is a big place. So talking about transfer pricing in Africa, strange thing. But start out just introducing a little bit about your practice, but also how are is your government and how are other governments thinking about transfer pricing challenges, both in the application of the arm's length standard and in terms of the forms? Thank you, Nate. Thank you for having me here today. Um, I'm Lolade. I'm with UUBO. That's Udo Udoma and Bele Osage, a, a law firm in Nigeria, in Africa, um, where I lead the tax team and I do a, a few other things as well. So yes, uh, transfer pricing has become the buzzword um, for some time now in, in, in international tax in Africa and in Nigeria in particular. And a lot of the influence has been, of course, from the OECD BEPS initiative that's been going on since about 2013. And so, for instance, I'll speak um, concerning Nigeria, where I practice from. In 2012 was the first time that we had our first transfer pricing regulations. Prior to that, we didn't really have a formal set of rules that governed transfer pricing. We just had a general anti-avoidance provision in our tax laws, and that would typically cover issues relating to transfer pricing. But transfer pricing became a subject of focus in 2012, but even more so in 2018, after, of course, uh, the OECD had released its final reports on the various BEPS action plans. And transfer pricing, of course, was at the fore because of related party transactions. Uh, Being a source country, of course, it was very relevant to the jurisdiction. So um, that's just a quick intro as to how transfer pricing has come to be become part of our daily lives now as tax practitioners in this side of the world. Thanks so much, Lalanda. And if we can turn to Zach to give a quick intro and talk about what you do. We know you're not a transfer pricer per se, but you know transfer pricing has become like the Borg and touches and concerns everything. So kind of give us a bit of what you do and kind of how transfer pricing has touched your practice, if you can. Well, thank you, David, and thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. Um, it's always, always great. I may not be a transfer pricer, right? But you know, transfer pricing very close to my heart. I, I started practicing. I went back to school to write a dissertation, a doctoral dissertation in something very close to transfer pricing. So even though it doesn't know what I do on a daily basis, it's very close to my heart. So uh, Zach Puga is my name. I'm a partner 
you know, international tax group at Ernst Young, based in New York. Um, but I do have a lot of clients and I work a lot on the continent in Africa. I am originally from Cameroon. So I do part of my practice really is working with U.S. multinational companies that have a presence in Africa and working with African multinational companies that are looking to expand into the U.S. So I try to walk that bridge a little bit between the U.S. and, and Africa and more on the core ITS, ITS, international tax um, services, uh, whether it is uh, M&A, little bit of transfer pricing, not as much, but these days a lot of BEPS, a lot of uh, BEPS 2.0, a lot of Globe, a lot of Pillar 1, Pillar 2. So that's really my main focus is because a lot of the clients, are, a lot of my clients, the private practice are worried about how this affects their presence in Africa and a lot of African mm -hmm. governments um, are worried about how this will affect them. And I do work uh, more on the outside, my current private practice. I work with governments across Africa, I partner with the African Union. And I do travel across Africa regularly to work with governments in trying to help them shape their policies to respond um, to the ever increasing complexity of yes. international tax, international tax world. So this is always a very welcome discussion for me. No, that's perfect. And I think you ended in a, in a really good place for us. Um, a lot of our episodes have been around, as you describe it, the ever more complex world of international tax. And if we can level set a bit, both Alande and Zach, and kind of give us a view of that complexity from the, you know, the Africa landscape. As Nate said in the beginning, Africa is a very big place, and there's several different perspectives there. But if you can kind of give us a flavor of some of the issues that are kind of germane to Nigeria or other, or other areas you've worked with, and how, from the one side, U.S. multinationals operating in Africa are looking at it, and on the other side companies in Africa that are kind of branching out, as well as African governments, how are they handling all of these complexities? I would maybe classify in three different groups. Uh, you have mm -hmm. some countries that are doing somewhat well. Uh, and maybe if I narrow it down just from a transfer pricing perspective, you have some countries that are doing well in trying to keep up with what is going on. You have countries that are trying to figure it out, and you have countries that have no clue. Right. Um, and when you talk about countries that are doing somewhat well, I will put Nigeria, I will put South Africa, and more so these days, I'll put Kenya, who have done a great investment uh, in trying to dig into these international tax rules and understand how and adapt their local policies. And then you have smaller countries that are trying to figure out that's usually where the African Union tried to bring a little bit of expertise uh, from around the world to try to help them shape the policies. And then you have the even smaller countries that really have no clue and don't seem to be investing anything to catch up with, with these, these, um, these different complexities. And how is it being seen and how is it being really? The, the thing I hear a lot, and I keep hearing every time I go, every time I'm interacting with these governments or this private sector even, is that the government really, they don't have the manpower to apply the rules they don't understand and the effectiveness of which they are not sure of. So it's a very deliberate governmental decision to try to allocate resources to understand these complex policies that are coming out when they have no assurance of the effectiveness in actually raising funds for them. You know, that's interesting because that's a complaint we've heard from a lot of jurisdictions in the even in those in the quote unquote, you know, developed world where they're saying we're resource constrained. We've just gone through this massive pandemic where we've used resources and we've got to allocate resources to this thing that we don't fully understand. 
So, you know, hearing that from an African perspective where that can be a bit more acute is very interesting. But sorry I jumped in there, Lalande, um, if you want to kind of chime in. Sure. Yeah, Zach has touched on, on a very important point there. And I'll talk about the repercussions of that because, indeed, so from a Nigerian perspective, a lot of resources um, have gone into just trying to implement quite a number of the BEPS actions. When the BEPS project kicked off, the expectation was, oh, you know, we we're going to be able to get, gain access into information that would boost our revenue collection. Now, how that is now beginning to play out is that the, the resources that are being directed into this implementation need to be recouped. And so what we're experiencing is a very aggressive uh, revenue drive mm. on the side of the tax authorities as well. So, for instance, with transfer pricing, we've seen an increase in transfer pricing audits, and we've seen the tax authorities trying to even claw back uh, right as far back as um, 2013. You know, like I said, the first set of regulations were promulgated in 2012. And if you compare the content of those regulations with the 2018 regulations, for instance, we didn't even have any penalty provisions in the 2012 regulations. It was really sparse in terms of content and not very detailed. But the 2018 regulations is a lot more detailed, tailored after the OECD transfer pricing guidelines and with huge penalty provisions as well. So the penalty provisions we've seen is a sort of low-hanging fruit for the um, tax authorities to, to, to at least, you know, collect some revenue. And so you have that vicious cycle where as the more government is pumping into trying to implement these measures, the more aggressive the tax authorities are becoming and pushing the boundaries, boundaries like limitation periods to raise um, additional assessments and, and things like that. So it, it's a real issue. We've definitely seen more activity on the transfer pricing audit and controversy across Africa. I have a client, whether it's mostly in the countries that are doing well in my first categorization earlier, whether it's mm-hmm. Nigeria, South Africa, or Kenya, we've seen a lot more activity on the audit side. So let me, let me ask a question from that. Would, could that be interpreted as a success then of the BEPS project or the, the guidelines, right? Because they were supposed to kind of enhance countries' ability to raise revenue enhance their ability to kind of go after transfer pricing or enforce transfer pricing policies. So if you have an area where you haven't had this enforcement for a very long time, you have these new rules that have led to kind of aggressive enforcement, maybe there's a bit of over time and degree changing, but could that be interpreted as a success that you see these audits happening in in new places? All of us are smiling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's hard as tax practitioners to say more aggressive audits is a good thing, but I guess I've got my old IRS hat still on. <laughs> Take that hat off, David. What, I, it, 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 it doesn't fit well anymore. Another way of asking the same question is, is where the case is landing, right? Yeah. Because you can imagine a world in which the, the audits are unprincipled and aggressive yes. and are used to negotiate nuisance type settlements, or you can imagine a world where there is, you know, just better enforcement of the guidelines yeah. and the, the tax authorities now have the resources to do it. Which is it? Or is it a mixed bag? 
I would say um, it's a mixed bag. And honestly, I smile because success is relative. And, and David just confirmed that it depends on which side of the fence you're standing. <laughs> so you have all this audit, you have all this controversy. Uh, the taxpayer is spending a lot more money trying to resolve disputes. So is tax really being collected even? So I don't know if that looks like success. And when, when, when you talk about the success of the BEPS project generally, there are other big issues um, in Nigeria, for instance. I, I don't know whether this conversation would go there today. But for instance, you know, one of the challenges that BEPS was meant to tackle was the whole issue of rewriting the rules around permanent establishments and creating taxable presence for digitalized businesses. And so what has metamorphosed, um, sorry, that word is difficult for me, but what has resulted <laughs> in um, yeah. to BEPS um, 2.0, as you know, the pillar one, pillar two, Nigeria is mm -hmm. out of that. Nigeria has still not signed up to that. Because we're when we're talking about success, really, the whole expectation was that having implemented all the BEPS actions, or at least the minimum standards, the government will make more revenue. But it looks like it's looking like a potential impoverishment of the government when we talk about implementing some of these measures. So success for me has a lot of question marks around it. There is a level of awareness that these policies have brought up. I don't know if the policies mm -hmm. themselves or just the awareness that they have brought up, right? Whether it's BEPS, mm -hmm. whether it's the, the TP regs, there's a level of understanding from a government perspective that there's a part of money out there, right? And some yeah. of these audits are really just comical, right? But they know the fact that they will hit the page might put some pressure on the company and they might get a settlement. So there's just, I, I, I attributed more to the level of awareness um, of the pressure that the company's private sector is under um, than on the effectiveness of the actual rules, I'm not sure, uh, because we fight them pretty hard. Um, and most of the times the governments end up losing. But because it looks bad and the governments are becoming more aware of that, they will go ahead and hope for a settlement. Does it vary much by the posture of the company, right? Whether uh, the, the country is just a market country and uh, you have basically sales and distribution versus something where you have more homegrown champions. Nigeria has a fabulously dynamic fintech sector. And I wonder, is the approach that's being taken similar across the board or is there a profile that tends to be more aggressively audited? Great question, Nate. So... It's, it's the same rule across board, but that's starting to change slowly, slowly. Recently, the fintech sector, there has had to be some engagement with the tax authorities just to even help them understand the business model. Because with fintechs especially, they make the news all the time. Once there's news, oh, you know, Nigeria just produced another unicorn and, you know, the tax authorities start to see dollar signs there. And without actually realizing that some of these businesses, we're just talking about the amount of money, capital they've been able to raise. We're not even talking about whether they've broken even or they've made enough profit to be able to pay taxes. And also considering that it's a very, it can be a harsh terrain to do business from an infrastructure perspective. A lot of these fintechs, for instance, are even expecting some incentives to be extended to them to enable them grow and generate jobs. So that sort of engagement is starting slowly, and we're hoping that 
perhaps they can even look at it and try to even consider a special tax regime for this category of businesses. I agree with that. And, and the fintech in Nigeria, just a symbol of the fintech in Africa in general, I think is a very strong sector that's growing really, really fast. Um, but I don't think it particular, at least I haven't noticed a particular attention to it because there are some different sectors, um, clients in totally different opposite sectors that are feeling the same kind of pressure. So it feels like it is across the board. But I was going to piggyback on the comment that uh, Lula made earlier on Nigeria not, not, not signing on to Lula 2. Right. And that's something we have been kind of uh, spending a little bit of time uh, working with government to make them understand whether you sign on or you do not sign on to Pillar 2 is going to affect you. Right. And I know there's a lot of work being done in, in Nigeria to see the fact that they haven't signed on to it, how it might still affect them. But a lot of countries going to be, a lot of African countries are trying to make that call. So to unpack that a little more, I think Lulana made a good point about, you know, Nigeria in particular and other countries looking at the rules and saying, well, these rules don't work to our benefit, right? Are there options uh, places like Nigeria or Cameroon or South Africa are putting on the table for, um, for Pillar 2 or other options they're discussing as to what they're going to adopt, whether it's some kind of unilateral measure or otherwise, to make sure that their interests are, are, are met? Or, or to your earlier point, Zach, and there are probably different categories of this, are there folks who just haven't thought about that yet? And if I can add on to that question, what is the impact of countries moving at different times? So how they're thinking about this differently and, and, and would it be at all beneficial or practical for them to have more of a unified approach? A lot of countries are looking at BEPS as an opportunity, right? Like we saw how the country by country reporting uh, became a little bit of a game changer for some jurisdictions that were able to use that information to to go and probably that could have been the basis for some of the more stronger audits that are happening on the continent. So a lot of African companies as uh, countries are seeing the the BEPS 2.0 as an opportunity, right? Like there's just put Pillar One on the shelf for a minute. Going back to, to Pillar Two, I know a lot of African countries pushed for really a lot more interest and a lot more priority to the subject of tax role, right? And we know how that ended up, right? Right now, the subject of tax role hasn't gone much, <laughs> hasn't gone anywhere. It has been kind of put in the back burner. And even when it would be implemented, the OECD has decided that the subject of tax rule will be implemented on bilateral treaties. So these countries will have to convince uh, their treaty partners to sit down and renegotiate the treaties. And we know how that could end up, right? So a lot of countries are somewhat frustrated in the way that ordering has happened, uh, how the subject to tax rule has not gained the interest that they wanted it to have. And I believe that's one of the major positions from Nigeria, for example. And then they're looking, they're also looking at the BEPS role as, as an opportunity. And the discussion I'm having over and over again is regarding the qualified minimum tax, right? So a lot of these countries are looking at the qualified minimum tax and saying, can we just implement a qualified minimum tax and make sure that the 15% is right here and we don't have to worry about anything else, right? And that's a discussion that's happening a lot. And some countries are going even further than that. They're saying, okay, instead of doing the OECD's suggested qualified minimum tax, can we just do a minimum tax for everyone? That means for companies that will be in the scope of the pillar two rules, but also for everyone else, just do a minimum tax for everyone. So those are things that will likely start to be implemented very soon, right? And some countries are restraining it to the OECD suggested qualified minimum tax, which will only apply to companies that are within the scope of the OECD Pillar 2 rules. But then other countries are looking just at a general minimum tax that will be applicable to everyone 
um, whether you are in the OECD scope or not. Here's a hint for all these countries. The, the broader tax that's not a qualified minimum tax is a better tax. So they're probably going to see that and end up there. I think they would like that too. <laughs> in, con- <laughs> in, in concept, it raises more funds. But How do they balance that against the desire to maybe attract inbound investment? You know, we've had conversations in the past about some countries, uh, Rwanda, I think, was thinking about this for a time, trying to use their tax system to incent more inbound investment. Is that still a trend or are folks moved past that? It is still a worry, um, and I think this has been in the paper. So the, the, some of the discussions or work we've done with the government of Kenya, for example, um, and that's the question that was posed to them, right? Like, how do you balance it with your need? And Kenya has been trying to be open and attract uh, this very booming private sector. But the feeling or the response to that has been, well, the money is going to go somewhere, right? Like the 15% seems to be the new zero. So if the money is going to go somewhere, we will be damned to let it go elsewhere. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 